Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Dave Baxter, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Katie Potts, Manager of Herald Investment Trust. One of the most important things you need to do when putting together your investment portfolio is to diversify it. You may think that the obvious thing to do is to hold different types of equities alongside different assets. But unfortunately, diversifying your portfolio is not so easy. Dave, you've been looking at this. Why is this? Hi, Leonora. Um, Yeah, I mean... Obviously, it's always good to be diversified, um, but an interesting concern that's risen um, particularly last year to prominence is uh, the idea that perhaps some of your classic diversifying assets, such as bonds, um, won't perform that function as well, um, just because last year you saw equities um, perform incredibly well, but you saw the same with bonds, which suggests that they're kind of moving together in tandem and they are more correlated than before. So um, with your portfolio, how do you establish, you know, how correlated your holdings are? It's Unfortunately, it's really difficult. I mean, you can look at things like performance. But what we've done as a kind of indication is run some correlation figures looking at uh, one-year correlations on different asset classes. Just starting with equities, you know, how correlated are different types of equities to each other? Yeah, as you perhaps might expect, they are very correlated, even if you diversify across regions. If you look at the S&P 500, for example, um, obviously US equities are a large part of the global market. That is very highly correlated to the global equity indices, but also, for example, with European equities. So a perfect correlation is one. And the S&P 500 on a one-year time horizon had a 0.87 correlation with, with Europe. So um, how correlated are equities to other assets such as bonds? I think the good news here is our data suggests that bonds still do offer some of that negative or low correlation to equities. So hopefully if equities do struggle, then bonds should again protect your portfolio. Um, So broadly, a broad index of bonds is still fairly lowly correlated to the S&P. Um, But then if you look at uh, government bonds in the UK or globally, they're either lowly correlated or negatively correlated. So are bond funds a good diversifier then? Uh, Yes and no. Yeah, as always, you need to think about why uh, you're going to... uh, you're going to buy into that. The, some of the drawbacks of bonds, like them looking quite expensive, but also different bonds have different correlations. So while government bonds are the classic diversifier against equities, high yield bonds continue to be much more correlated with stocks. So they, they should perform well and they should offer some yield, but they're not going to give you that protection if equities struggle. Okay, so some things to consider. Uh, So bearing this in mind, I mean, how do you go about diversifying your portfolio? So I think bearing in mind these these correlation figures is useful, but you should always remember the underlying case for the investment and just think about why you're holding something. So going back to government bonds, for example, Yields tend to be low or negative, so you're not really getting income. They look quite expensive. They could be vulnerable to challenges of their own. Um, So if you're going to hold that, then you need to bear in mind that it's a potential diversifier, but it might not do much else. And then if you look at other uh, diversifying assets, like, uh, for example, property, you need to consider the implications there. So as we've discussed before, in an open-ended fund, um, you know, property exposure may 
create some liquidity issues for you. What might be a good way to get exposure to diversifying assets such as certain types of bonds? So with bonds, one good route can be via the um, strategic bond fund route. But you, as always, you need to be careful. You need to look at what's actually in the fund. I mentioned high yield before, and some of the strategic bond funds are more focused on growth, um, capital returns, and they will have quite a chunky exposure to high yield. But on the other side of the coin, you have some that are very defensively positioned. So one example would be M&G Optimal Income, run by uh, Richard Woolnow, which tends to have high exposure to areas such as government bonds and higher quality corporate bonds. Thank you, Dave. And see this week's big theme to see how correlated other types of assets and funds are to equities and how you can really diversify your portfolio. Many tech companies are listed in the US, so not surprisingly, many tech funds are focused on this market. But Herald Investment Trust uh, has a much greater focus on UK equities, with the US only accounting for about a quarter of its assets at the end of January. Katie, um... There are far more tech stocks listed in markets such as the US than in the UK. So why are over half the trust's assets in the whole market? The simple answer is that it's because we found the UK profitable um, over the entire history of the fund. We've made 75% of our profits in the UK. And in context, we've raised 65 million in 94 and 30 million uh, two years later and haven't raised any money since. And we've raised, um, ne- we've made nearly 900 million of total return out of the UK portfolio. It's true that in the recent past, the returns have been better in, in overseas markets. But drilling down, the US market is not nearly as big as I think intuitively you think, because all the big tech names are based in the States. People are inclined to think it extends down to small companies. But actually, the number of companies in our remit. Um, our definition of small is below $3 billion uh, market cap. Um, and if you knock off the, the very small ones, the number between $50 million and $3 billion has fallen uh, last year from 616 to 535 at the end of last year in the States, which is more than the UK, but it's, it's only three times as many as the UK. Um, but it's been shrinking a lot faster than the UK. And the $60 million question is why? And there's a very simple explanation. A few years ago, the US introduced Sarbanes-Oxley, which has made it very expensive. That's an accounting act. That's an act for requiring uh, reporting that's a hybrid of regulatory and accounting um, requirements. And at the same time, you've had some very successful venture capitalists. And it's become evident that the venture owners are doing not just A and B rounds, but... Series C, D, E and F, and they're running companies to a much later stage. And I think there were 30 IPOs in the States last year, but only 30. And some of them, a number of more high profile ones, were coming to market bigger than our small cap size limit. And as far as I'm concerned, it's a very different proposition when an IPO is an exit for a sophisticated investor. Whereas the appeal of AIM has been that companies come to market seeking development capital. It's not an exit uh, for investors, but it's actually companies that need capital. And we found it very fulfilling to have provided, I think we've um, invested over 500 million in primary capital to small businesses, uh, most of which has been 
in the UK. Okay. And we're very pleased that we've made a good return without any tax incentives <laughs> and provided provided needed capital to, to help businesses uh, develop. Now, UK equity valuations are considered to be generally low. Um, is this also the case with the areas that you invest in? It's not low by standards of 2008. Um, I did actually check to see what the, the P of the portfolio was before I came out. And first of all, we've got 17.5% of the fund in unprofitable companies. And I would stress that in our case, unprofitable is, is pre-profits. Because that's our stock and trade. We do invest in companies quite early stage. But of the ones that have reached profitability, the P in the UK is just over 20 times, which is higher than it has been. But it's not bubble territory, particularly for companies that are growing. In contrast, the P of the US portfolio is 30 times. And this is uh, based on Bloomberg's forecast earnings estimates. The problem I have in the US is that a very big part of the cost of running businesses in the tech world is share-based payments. And often earnings reported are adjusted to exclude share-based payments and almost invariably analysts don't forecast share-based payments. So I would argue, I can't quantify it, but I would argue that the P of the US portfolio is materially understated, which uh, is is much less of an issue in the UK and not an issue at all in Europe and Asia. It's very much a, a US problem. And share-based payments means giving shares away at zero cost. And it's a true cost of running the company and you can't in my view, just ignore it. You've um, obviously done very well investing in the UK, but actually how easy is it to find good tech opportunities listed in this country? And what sort of um, companies do you invest in? Well, one thing that I, I would, we're very good at running ourselves down, but I, actually the UK is very entrepreneurial and innovative. And another extraordinary aspect. Uh, people often talk about the cloud and data centers and the growth, and you think of the big companies like Amazon Web Services and Microsoft. But actually, it's an extraordinary stimulant to small companies because it's there, there are some arguments that it's reduced the cost of capital equipment and IT uh, for small companies by down to 1% of the cost of if they'd had to buy a, a server and a storage array and and so on so that's an amazing stimulus and it gives reduces the barriers to entry to people uh, to start up companies the bigger issue actually is is there's a shortage of co-investors that the small cap market is good support from private investors but the, there is a trend that um you know the bigger the houses get they worry about liquidity and it's perceived as a risk so I perceive there is more of a capital shortage than a, an opportunity shortage. What kind of um, companies do you invest in and are they all in the tech sector? Well, our remit is, is technology, media and telecoms. And I, I started that in 94 and it took a mm. bit more explaining then. But I think it's become more obvious that the internet and media has, has, has all rather, rather merged a significant overlap. Even in, in the internet, we don't consider an online retailer as our sector. We look for people who've got the added value of, of technology. And what will be uh, examples but, of... But it, what we do look for, and 
is companies that have the potential to, to have high gross margins. And my hobby horse is that we're in a knowledge-based world. If you're an mm. individual with no skills, you're on the minimum wage. And if you've got skills, you can be getting paid more than ever. And it's just the same for companies, that if if you haven't got a differential, you've got low margins. And if you've got a differential, if you've got something somebody else hasn't got, you have pricing power. And the the fun thing about the technology sector is, I think more than any other sector, there's the ability to make super normal margins. And it's not a case of return on capital, it's return on know-how. And the most extreme example is the software sector, whereas it costs a lot of money to develop for the first customer, but the marginal cost of selling to the second customer can be can be negligible. And why there's such an interesting investment opportunity and why we're prepared to invest in loss-making companies is that the investment has to be made up front. But it does mean that once people get a lead, they've got the customer base to go on generating uh, maintenance revenues or SaaS-based recurring revenues to, to keep ahead. Um, and what would be example of uh, portfolio holdings um, that do this? Uh, well, I mean, I think there are a lot of the, the companies in the in the software that have moved to... Uh, the most extreme example is, is Apple, which isn't in mm. the small cap portfolio, but we did meet Apple when they were a small company and... The extreme example is you couldn't possibly afford to develop the iOS system and the on the iPhone for one person, but you spread the cost over millions of people and it can be a consumer product. But in the middle, there are some small companies that address specific uh, markets that can have niches that give them commanding positions. And one example is that the largest US holding we've got is Pegasystems, which I bought in 2003. And... Uh, they provide rules-based engines and sophisticated customer relationship management for enterprises uh, talking to corporates. But they've built up a, a big client base. And elsewhere, we've had a few takeovers. There was a company called Tunity that was taken over last year that was a software company that helped companies move their, their data to the cloud to mirror data in the cloud and on-premises are there any promising new tech areas emerging within the UK or do you have to look further afield for these? The UK, as I say, is particularly good at innovation. Uh, you, you look at what it, the UK is good at. I think some people have said we've been good at rock music, good at computer games. Uh, some people suggest that the UK is good at being creative because we're rather anarchic. <laughs> um, but there is innovation here and it's interesting that even the big US, the, the very big US tech companies have got big presence in the UK with Google having deep minds focusing on artificial intelligence and Amazon's Alexa was developed in Cambridge. Um, so there's a skill set here and technology is constantly opening up new markets. You look at the way, you know, to begin with, we all got on the internet and had snail mail emails, and now we're all taking for granted uh, streaming video. But now you're extending it to, to the internet of things, and we're all going to have devices with um, endpoints, and you've got the edge computing emerging where more processing is going to be done in the field. You can see it's a constant evolution, and small companies tend to be good at, at exploiting new markets better than old ones.
When you selecting companies in the UK or elsewhere, are there any particular attributes that you look for? Well, as I say, we like to see see some pricing power. We like to confidence that management have are both not just creative technically, but also commercially aware. We are valuation sensitive. Sometimes people get carried away with extrapolating growth rates ad infinitum and a good sense check is, you know, what, how big is this market going to be? What percentage market share can they get? And how quickly, so we don't mind investing in loss-making companies, but I want to have confidence that it can reach profitability and make profits to return the value of the company and more in profits over a reasonable time frame. Now, you mentioned that there's some US uh, companies that you couldn't invest in because of size issues. So what's the minimum and maximum size of investments that you look for? Well, well our, our threshold is we don't invest in companies above three billion. That has risen over time. It started smaller, but we haven't adjusted it for a while. But we are quite happy to invest in small companies. And we're, we quite like putting small amounts of money into com- to early stage companies uh, because we're risking small amounts of money. And if management is doing what they say they're doing, we're happy to follow our money. And a lot of companies, we've built up holdings over time by supporting follow-on fundings. And it's interesting, although we have um, nearly 300 holdings, we've got um, the top 20 account for over 30%. But on average, we've owned the top 20 for 12 years. And on average, I think we've made more than five times our money in all of those holdings. So our bigger positions tend to have started as small companies. So I see diversification in a normal portfolio might be two dimensions, but I call ours three dimensions because there's a life cycle. We invest early stage. And some people think, well, isn't it irrelevantly small to put a million pounds into a, a, a billion market cap fund. But actually, it's some of those small ones becoming big that has made our best our best returns, including our biggest holding GB group. I think it was sort of, we were buying shares as low as 20, 22p. And it was, you know, a, a million pounds was, a, was the book cost that's now 40 million. So you can make very good returns by sticking with companies that you know and you build up the holding when they have follow-on offerings. But um, when a, an investment gets to a certain size, uh, do you sell it? And um, what are your other reasons for selling a holding? To be honest, the biggest reason in the last five years for selling has been takeovers. And to a, slightly, uh, uh, to a degree, takeover is a good thing. But it's been, we've been slightly overrun with takeovers Last year, 25% of our US portfolio was taken over, only 8% of the UK portfolio, but we have had a succession. And I think we've received back nearly 600 million in takeovers over the last few years, which is extraordinary in relation to 95 million of outside capital. Uh, There's a degree to which emerging markets do have lots of players. I think there were hundreds of car manufacturers in the UK in the 1920s, and that's consolidated into a handful of car manufacturers globally. So part of it is a natural cycle. But what's been anomalous in the recent past is how many companies have been taken over by private equity. So it has, isn't a large cap consolidating a smaller player. Um, and the complication is that private equity is using more efficient balance sheets in inverted commas, i.e. they're using lots of 
cheap debt. And uh, I think that's that they're clearly paying higher valuations than the public markets, um, which is underpinning the market for, for the time being. There are other reasons why you sell. You sell because you know, valuations can get ahead of events and people can think extrapolate the growth rates when you know actually the, the best has been, been had and there can be structural you know, bottom-up reasons that, that, that make you change your mind on something. UK assets of all kind have a large challenge facing them on the horizon, namely the UK's departure from the European Union next year. So how much of a risk is this to your UK holdings? And do you anticipate reducing UK exposure next year when uh, the departure goes ahead? I would expect to you the UK portion of the portfolio will fall, but it's got nothing to do with Brexit or the economy, it's to do with the fact that there hasn't been the flow of new issues in the way there there has been in in the past. It's something we do monitor. I think we account for 2% of of AIM TMT stocks, and we think that's as much as you want to have in that market. So the market needs to be bigger. (laughs) We keep on selling out of the UK and we still have uh, 2% of the market, which is as much as you want to have liquidity and stock selection. But as far as the UK affecting the sector, quite frankly, I think it's pretty negligible because for a start, under WTO rules, a lot of the tech sector is zero rated. A bigger frustration to me is how many small tech companies in the UK have done well in the US market or in Australia and Canada and less well at getting into European markets. And I think language is obviously a big a big incentive to make make it easier, but also US market is more open to accepting a product if it's better than some of the European markets. People tend to target the European markets after they've conquered the states, <laughs> yeah, than before. I mean, what other risks do your UK holdings face? I think it, it is this liquidity l- liquidity issue. When I started Herald in 1994, we used to sit behind companies like. The Prue and Legal and General, um, you know, the life companies and um, some of the big um, pension funds, and they have withdrawn really from UK small caps, except at the margin. They've significantly withdrawn from UK equities, and more recently, the co-investors have been open-ended funds and and private investors. But it's more difficult for small companies to raise money from private investors because of the. In my youth, there were public offerings where you could subscribe for in a in a flotation, but the cost of that is very expensive, and it's much cheaper and easier for companies to raise money from a handful of institutional investors. But the number of institutional investors has dramatically shrunk who look at companies below, say, 200 million market cap. I mean, more broadly, smaller companies and technology are considered to be high-risk and volatile. So I suppose just generally, I mean, how do you manage these issues? Well, we, we diversify, and that was the policy from day one. We diversify, um, and we've always had a policy of um, trying not to go over 10%. You know, one of the elementary things about investing in small companies is if you keep buying, you you move the price. And we we deliberately don't chase prices, chase prices up. And equally, if you change your mind, if things get too expensive, you don't want to be so big, you can't 
you can't get out again. And on average in the UK, we own 4.2% of the companies we invest in, which is about, to me, it's the ideal balance, your your importance to the company, <laughs> but it's not an uh, irreversibly large position. Now, one of your largest holdings, Future, is under pressure from uh, hedge fund Shadowfall, mm. which has accused it of spending a lot of money acquiring low-quality assets and mm. reporting growth that's hard to substantiate. Do you share Shadowfall's concerns on this uh, investment? Well, uh, I'm not familiar with Shadowfall for all their, all their arguments. But what I would say in general is that it's, um, I'm a bit puritanical about these things and I'm very sensitive to the fact that our Victorian forebears worked out that you can't insure other people's property. I can't insure your house and benefit if it burns down because I don't lose anything and I it might give me an incentive to put a match to it. So it's a fundamental principle that you can't, you can only insure to the extent you lose. And the trouble with shorting stocks is that people can actually benefit by damaging somebody else's profits. And I don't know about this particular instance, but I do think there is a fundamental danger that it, it troubles me that there's more regulation than ever, but more bad behaviour than ever with uh, you know, people deliberately spinning stories to, to try and um, reduce somebody else's share price. That can have knock-on effects to, to people's jobs and people's livelihoods. And I, I can't believe at some stage they're not going to have to, um, to work out a, a way of controlling this. Um, but what I can say about Future is they've done a really good job of, they started off with some interesting titles. They started off publishing computer games magazines and they developed um, very popular sites like Tech Radar, which I don't know whether you've ever used it, but if you want to buy a new computer printer or something and you want to read some reviews first, then that's quite a popular site to go and see. And where they've been very commercial in making the business model more profitable is they've reduced the number of print publications with the expensive postage, packaging, paper, etc. that goes with it, moved more online and diversified away from just display advertising and had click to buy. So if you can if you want to buy a printer, it will give you a recommendation of which one to buy and they get a commission. Yeah, I suppose and, the problem is even uh, if the underlying business is you know, doing well and these um, rumours are unsubstantiated. If this hedge fund shorting the company's shares, its share price could fall and ultimately the investment trust makes its profit based on mm. the share price of this company. So, I mean, are you doing anything about it? Would you consider reducing your holding, for example, in future oh, well, because we, of we share have, price yes. damage? I mean, but that's just a natural portfolio management. So not to do a already... shadow fall? No, but we've already yeah. reduced um, reduced the position. That's just a natural... But would you, would you do that as a as a result of you know the risk to its share price because of these actions from the hedge fund? We don't care what other people think. We have our own views on what or, mm. on our own analysis of the things, and um, we are impressed that they have been commercial in in exploiting the the content they have. But the, the market can get carried away with things, and it was a brilliant response the day after the the Shadowfall announcement that they came out with a. A ten percent increase in the in the numbers, so it's not a it's not a short term issue. No, 
Herald Investment Trust hasn't made such high returns as US-focused peers like Polar Capital Technology Trust and Allianz Technology Trust mm-hmm. and broad tech indices mm-hmm. like Dow Jones World Technology over one, three and five years. Which asset allocation differences in particular are the reasons for this? Is, is it the UK exposure or any other issues well, it, at play there? It's most significantly that small companies haven't scaled as dramatically as a handful of large companies that have driven the the wider indices. And I I don't think it's either or. You should be invested in both because the tech sector, we've still done dramatically better than the the wider market. But I did um, pull out some figures. Last year, the Russell 2000 Smaller Companies Technology Index. So that's that's the subset of technology companies within the Russell um, US Index was up 29% and the large cap index was up 41%. So the large cap index was 12% ahead of the small cap index. And I think over the long term, it it was very performed similarly for a long time and has diverged quite mar- markedly over the last five years. And I'm quite chuffed that our US portfolio did nearly as well as the large cap tech index last year. But I think we were lucky that we had quite so many takeovers. It's lucky and unlucky. We're sad to lose some of the positions and it's reduced our weighting in the States. But we, we did actually, my colleague said, well, perhaps we should have had more money in the States because I think over five years, our US portfolio is is up a lot, uh, a lot more than the UK over five years, even if over the whole of history, the UK has done better. But five years, our North American portfolio is up 171.4%. And the small cap index is up 135%. But I mean, we did actually drill down and looked at what is the return of the stocks below $3 billion. And actually last year that was only 17.7%. And I'm pleased to say that last year our UK portfolio was ahead of the US small cap index. And uh, so we were up 30% in the, in the UK last year. Yeah, I just suppose our listeners sitting at home might think, well... That's all well and good, but ultimately, you know, um, these larger US companies and funds which invest them have made greater returns. So why would you say that they should con- still consider, you know, Herald Investment Trust as opposed uh, to, you know, larger US I don't think it should be opposed to. I think they should have them both. You know, there's zero overlap. Um, we've got a fund that, that addresses larger companies and over five years that's done it better than the trust. But the trust has done a lot better than the wider generalist in indices. But I do think every investor should be invested in Microsoft and Amazon and you know, the big drivers of those indices. I think they're about 14% of the index alone, Microsoft and Apple. So the return has been very narrowly focused on Alphabet, Amazon, Apple. And every everybody should own their shares. You either do it directly or you buy a fund like polar or like Herald Worldwide Technology Fund. But nothing is without risk Mm. and they're becoming so successful. They're absolutely locomotives, those companies. But the more successful they are, the more the political risk goes up that something changes. (laughs) And at that point, smaller companies will have uh, better relative returns. Now, there are also many Asian tech companies. Um, How come Herald Investment Trust doesn't have more of its assets in, in Asia? I suspect we will over time. It was interesting that I think there were over 60 IPOs in our space in Japan last year. But 
if America has intellectual superiority in the sector, and and to a degree the UK, manufacturing is in Asia. Uh, the manufacturing quality, the manufacturing expertise, and the revenues are in Asia. I think there are 4,000 companies in our size remit in our sectors in Asia compared to only 535 in the States. But a lot of those are quite low margin. They don't fit our criteria of having pricing power. They're doing a very good job at giving China a balance of payment payment surplus. But a lot of the small companies supply the large companies and it's not a very good business model if you're dependent on a narrow customer base of very powerful customers. So although there are masses of companies there, it's only a subset of those that are really interesting from an investment point of view. Taiwan did very well last year and my colleague, Fraser, has been to Asia. Well, he goes to Asia multiple times a year, but he's been to Australia for the last two or three years and is quite interested in the market there. And that's got a growing population of quoted technology companies. Herald Investment Management the manager of the trust, Mm. also runs venture capital funds focused on unquoted investments. Mm. Does Herald Investment Trust ever invest in these or any other types of securities other than listed equities? We've obviously um, considered it because we have a closed-end vehicle and we could uh, go to our shareholders and suggest we can make more money out of investing in, in private companies and we should make the switch to being a or at least in part a venture fund, and we've seen other um, high-profile managers doing that. And we have done a reasonable amount of work, and I would recommend we change the mandate if I really thought we were missing out on opportunities in a major way. I think there's some quite high valuations in the private world, and at the moment we've still got a sufficient number of opportunities in, in the public world. The trust had over 10% of its assets in cash and liquid assets in January. Is this still a case in wine? Is it why you've got no gearing? That's debt. Yeah, we have been running, certainly we started last year with higher cash balances than we'd intended to. But I have said that we are being overrun by takeovers. And we had 103 million of takeovers announced last year. And we had some cash in from takeovers from the year before. And we've already had, we had another takeover yesterday, a company called Adesto in the States was taken over. We've had Isravision announced a takeover, which is a German company that I bought in about 2005. So there are long-term, long-held holdings that are, are being taken over uh, at a faster rate than, than we're reinvesting. You know, historically, we've put in, you know, very rarely have we got book costs of higher than $3 million. And in the sub-3 billion world, it's only at the top end of that spectrum that you can invest in the secondary market without materially moving the price. And we've just had a a period where there's been lots of takeovers and and no POs. Thank you, Katie. A really interesting insight into the UK tech sector and update on Herald Investment Trust. That brings us to the end of today's show, but see Investors Chronicle or the website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk for more on diversifying your portfolio, technology funds and UK smaller companies. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.